This is Can I Laugh on Your Shoulder. Hey, welcome to Can I Laugh on Your Shoulder. I'm Molly Stillman, and this is a podcast where I sit down with a different guest each week and have raw, funny, often brutally honest conversations about the things that matter most. Faith, business, life, and everything in between, where we each learn how to be good stewards of the things we've been entrusted with even our stories, and how we can use those things to serve others and leave our families, our friendships, and our communities a little better than we found them. I want to create a space where people are unafraid to be themselves and unafraid to ask the questions that the rest of us are thinking. My goal is to make you laugh, cry, and laugh till you cry. I am a little under the weather this week, so you will probably notice that my voice doesn't sound like it normally does, (laughs) but I wanted to introduce my guest this week, and that is Rose Booth. Rose hails from Louisville, Kentucky, where she was born and raised. As an only child to older parents, she was encouraged to be an independent soul, which has served her well as a single woman living to serve Christ. She's worked for more than 30 years in the technology and publishing space and received her MBA in 2015 and thrives in environments where she can mentor and counsel others to grow in their careers and personal lives. But her passion is in ministry, in teaching and discipleship, and she loves working with women from college age and above. In December 2021, Rose became an amputee, and it has caused her to see life from a different perspective as she learns to navigate this new normal. Her first book, Dancing in the Valley, Finding Life and Joy Amidst the Shadow of Death Nipping at Her Heels, came out in December of 2023. And today she is joining me to just share her story. And she is just such an inspiration. And I know that you're going to love her. So without further ado, on to my chat with Rose Booth. Well, today is a very exciting day uh, because this has been a long time coming. Rose Booth is here with me on the show. Rose, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Molly. So we got connected like six months ago um, mm-hmm. through a uh, mutual friend, Joy Agatreed. And yes. congratulations, you just released your first book, Dancing in the Valley, Finding Life and Joy Amidst the Shadow of Death Nipping at My Heels. And um, just thank you for sharing your your story in, the, in this printed form. Um, and so I'm just so excited to get to know you more today and introduce you to the Can I Laugh on Your Shoulder community. So let's do what all my guests do and start off by having you give us the Rose 101. So tell us who you are, what you do, and how you got to where you are today. Wow. So that's, that's a long answer, Molly, but we'll try <laughs> to make it short. <laughs> so I, I'll say what I'm doing currently, and then I'll, I'll kind of give a little background. Currently, I do a lot of things uh, that I never thought I'd ever get to do. I uh, wrote a book, which is one thing. I also host, uh, co-host a podcast called One Single Thought. Uh, I'm very, very active at my church. I work there one day a week, and I work with the communications of discipleship pastor. I'm involved in our women's ministry. I help co-lead that. I lead di- discipleship groups. I teach a ladies' Bible study on Sunday mornings, co-teach that. Um, I would live on the church property if I could, I uh, think. But the Lord has been very gracious and has blessed me immensely. And I say that. Without anyone knowing, if you don't know my story, you probably would would think that's a good place to be in your life. 
so you, you've had a really good life. And what people don't know is I'm a right above knee amputee. And from 2019 to 2022, I had 14 surgeries. I faced death three times, had two heart casts, a heart attack, more than a year in the hospital and rehabs, and eventually losing my leg. Uh, but I will say that probably the worst time of my life got used to make my dreams come true because I'm before all of this, I was working a job I adored 50, 60 hours a week. I managed a sales team uh, as well as a sales support team. And I loved it. And I was active at church and in my life was busy and full and everything was great. And then in 2019, I, I got sick, ended up in the hospital and my life just completely took an about face. Hmm. Hmm. Well, you share your story so vulnerably in your book and, um, you know, I, I love people who are willing to just get real and vulnerable and get down into the, the depths of, of, of the, the grief and the pain of life while also simultaneously, um, talking about the joy and, and the living in that tension, because that is life. And, um, that is the beauty and brutality of life is that, that both. And, and, um, I would love to actually go back. Um, because one of the things that I love that you, the way you open your book is you talk about, um, kind of how, what your life itself was marked by and how, you know, you, you're, you were marked by, um, loving parents who, uh, you know, were married for 18 years, experienced multiple miscarriages. And, um, you know, and so like you in and of yourself were a miracle from the get go. So would you share a little bit of that story? Sure. My parents were married at a young age. They were 19 and 21. Yeah. And they really, of course, wanted to have children. My dad and my, my dad was a veteran of World War II. So they were they were like, they met through writing letters to each other. So they were the yeah. picture, you know, World War II, you know, rom romance. Yeah. So of course they, they tried having children and my mom suffered three miscarriages. Then uh, she was pregnant in uh, 1963, 64. And, you know, they thought this is going to be it. And, she went into labor, I believe, at f when the baby was five months, went to the hospital. The baby was born. It was a boy. He lived about four or five hours. But because of medical technology in 1964, yeah. you know, his lungs had not developed and, and we didn't have the technology then. If he had been born today, he would have lived. Yeah. So after... Um, after his birth and after he died, uh, the nurses came in and said, you know, we, we need to have a name to put on the certificate. And my parents chose to name him after my dad. Mm. And they said, the nurse said, are you sure you want to do that? And they both said, you know, this could be the only child we ever have. We've, we've waited mm. 17 years. And so the doctor, which back in those days, you know, general practitioners, family doctors, they did everything, right? They yeah, delivered babies, right. they took care of sickness. And he said to my mom and dad, you get out and try, keep trying, don't give up. Mm -hmm. 
which is pretty progressive for the 60s. Yeah. Um, yeah. So they did. And four months later, she got pregnant with me. Mm-hmm. And it was, you know, they never, she had no showers. She, they didn't buy anything. They borrowed, my crib was borrowed. My hot chair was borrowed. Yeah. They just, I mean, they just didn't think that this would come to pass. Yeah. So, you know, I was told from a very young age, as long as I can remember, you're a miracle. You're a gift from God and you're a miracle. And I often sometimes think about my brother. I would have loved to have had an older brother. But I often think sometimes that he, his life was a sacrifice for me to be here. Because I'm pretty sure my parents, if they had gotten one child, they would have been satisfied after mm. all they had been through. And so because my brother didn't survive, I was born. So I've always had a different perspective on life because I know that this was a miracle. And according to all medical science, my mom and probably dad probably shouldn't have ever had children. Yeah. And so here I am. Yeah. And so when you start, when you come into the world under such circumstances where you are, you know, you're, you know, just so wanted, um, you know, especially anybody who's ever experienced miscarriage, you know, knows that pain and, and child loss is so painful. I mean, I've experienced two late pregnancy losses and, you know, it just, it's, it's really painful and it, but it, you know, it just, it, it reminds you of what a miracle life is and what a miracle a child is. And, but I can imagine for your parents in particular, like, you know, you share in the book that they were Christians, mm-hmm. um, but to, you know, to welcome you into the world after all those years, like 18 years of marriage is a very mm-hmm. long time before yes. you have your first child. And especially in the sixties, like if they had gotten married what, you know, you said, you said 19 and 20, 19 and 21. Yeah. Yeah. And so yes. like my mom was, parents my mom was 37. Like, right. I mean, yeah. that's, so my mom, funny enough, like my mom was 30 eight when I was born, mm-hmm. which, you know, like that is like more common now, but back in the sixties yes. and I was born in 85, like that was pretty unusual for first children to be born, you know, when a parent yes. is late thirties or early forties, that's just almost unheard of. But yeah, but when you, you know, and I almost just wonder like, you being so wanted and prayed for and, and just something I can only imagine the conversations and the prayers that were shared between your parents for, for all those years. Um, you know, and I almost, I mean, I don't know if this was a conversation you ever had with them. Like, did you ever have a conversation about like, were they aware that they were dealing with infertility issues? Like, did they have the vocabulary for that at the time? I mean, maybe this is an ignorant question that I just genuinely don't know. Um, but like, I just feel like I, I've never really heard of people who were born in the fifties and sixties, like openly discussing if their parents had infertility issues. Yes. No, they really didn't talk about infertility. Like we do today. Right. I just think in those, in that time frame, in those days, there wasn't enough medical advancement to know that it was yeah. infertility, right. Or to figure yeah. out, I mean, there wasn't, the tests that they can run today. Interestingly, like, though, a, we never have to like be like TMI, but like it's not like yeah. contraception was that com, <laughs> com, you know, common either. Right. So, like, clearly, eighteen years. I can imagine your parents loved each other very much. If you get what yes. I'm saying, and like yes, for them to did. not really 
Yeah. And so like, that's just one of those things where you're just like, oh my gosh, I can't imagine in a time when infertility is not really talked about and, and, and they are just, they're in a loving marriage where they're like, they're, I can only imagine the conversations they had with God of like, why, why haven't you given us a child yet? Like that is, oh my goodness. Mm-hmm. You know, when you I know, was cleaning and, out some right, stuff. I mean, didn't mean to cut you off. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So I was cleaning out some stuff quite a few years ago and both my parents are gone now. And I found in a book, it was a little commitment card from like 1957 mm-hmm. So that was 10 years. They would, at that point, they would have been married 10 years. And it was a commitment card. I guess our church did a, like a, some kind of thing about committing to pray for your, you know, your children. And so this was like Mm -hmm. a card stating they would pray for the the children that the Lord would give them, which was such a precious thing because I know I can't imagine, you know, like you said, in those days, I mean, had I been born typical time frame, I would have been considered a baby boomer. These were, this was post you know, World War II, lots of babies being mm-hmm. born, you know, now I actually fall in the Gen X, you know, area. But, you know, I think that, I, you know, I really wish I could, as I have gotten older, my mom passed when I was 35, but I wish I had asked her more about, tell me how you were feeling. Mm. Tell me what you all, you know, what it, how did, how was that struggle? I think when I was younger, it just didn't hit me until I got older and, you know, I know mom felt like it was her fault. I do know that we've talked about, we had talked about that. Like she felt at fault. And of course my dad was like, no, it's not your fault. And yeah, so it just, it's kind of like going through something like that. And I think about being in situations where, you know, probably seeing babies being born just was like another stab in the heart. And I just, I don't know, it, it, it's something that I can really get consumed by thinking on because when I talk to people and I talk to women who are struggling with infertility and they say, well, you know, we've been married two years or whatever. And, and I'll, and I'll just very cal- calmly say, well, you know, my, my mom and dad were married 18 years and their mouth drops mm. and, and they're like, what, you know? And on top of that, adoption was not accessible in the '60s right. either. Yeah. So their 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 option to try to adopt internationally was not even talked about. Domestic was so expensive, and so you know that wasn't even something in their you know in their will where they could even afford to do that if they wanted to. So yeah, it's just you know it was a different time. You know, med- medical advances weren't at the level they are now accessibility for adoption wasn't there, which again, you know, I think the Lord wanted me here. Had they been able to adopt, maybe it wouldn't have been me. They would have had another child another way, but it it really puts, it has always put my life in perspective. And you mentioned how, you know, a child comes at this so wanted, so much, so opposite of what you would expect. My parents were not super hoverers over me. Mm. For someone who's an only child and someone that they waited so long, their philosophy was, we're older, we're not going to be here our whole life, you need to make a life for yourself, and you need to make a life with others and make sure you have a family. Yeah. I'm single, never married, and so my friends and my church are my family, and they taught me that from a really young age, all the way to mm. making decisions. The last decision that they 
actually really made for me was opening a bank account when I was in high school. Mm. After that college, buying cars, all those things, I would go to them for counsel, but they never came to me and said, you need to go to this school for college. and You need to buy this car. Never, never. And mm. very unusual because typically when you've waited that long for a gift, you, you really want to just cover over that gift. And I'm not saying they weren't loving and protective. They were, but they definitely mm. did not operate like I would say many parents would. But I think it was because they both knew that I was a gift from the Lord. And I would think of my mom a lot when I read the story of Hannah, who prayed and prayed and prayed yeah. for a child and then gave him back to the Lord. So yeah. that's that's kind of the picture I get when I think about my mom specifically. Yeah. And what a beautiful picture of, of, and I think your life, especially reading through your story and, and knowing what I know, um, is a testimony to that mm-hmm. of this, uh, steadfastness, um, within you and, um, grit and tenacity. Well, so I think, you know, again, like I was saying, it just, I think when you are born into circumstances like that, it just, it gives you a perspective on life and the miracle of life in such a unique way. And so I think that that is, that makes for a good uh, kind of transition to, you know, some of what you shared in the beginning in that, um, you know, you over the last five years have gone through a lot of, um, you know, more than what a lot of people are going to face in a lifetime, um, you know, concentrated in, in a a pretty short amount of time, uh, relatively speaking. And so would you, you know, obviously, I mean, don't want you to have to rehash all of it, uh, but kind of just, you know, share your story. I mean, I obviously, you know, spoiler alert, you, uh, are an amputee. Um, so, uh, but how you got there and you know what that was like for you, Um, as you know, you just, you were in a really, you know, not to borrow from the title of your book, but you were in a valley for a, a a significant period of time, but how you have come out on, and I don't know if, would you say you've come out on the other side of it? Um, or if you are kind of still walking the up swing out of the valley, um, you know, and, and, but you're able to praise and to worship and to give glory to God and all you're doing, um, in the midst of the pain, um, literally and, and spiritually. Yes. So November 14th of 2019, I woke up well, I had it all night long, but my right hip was killing me. I just couldn't get comfortable. And I'd been diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis in 93 and had had a left hip replacement at that point. To kind of bring you up to speed, those that are listening, that what I probably, I had a lot of issues starting around the age of five or six. And, you know, looking back now, I probably had juvenile rheumatoid arthritis, but that was not diagnosed mm-hmm. at that time. Yeah. So was diagnosed with RA in, nine, in the nine, early 90s, had a left hip replacement, was on medication, doing great. Had this, you know, pain in my right hip and ended up going to the ER. I was in just tears. Mm. What ended up happening is I had septic arthritis. So I was septic and that was the first time that I faced death in that, in that time period. 
I just remember sleeping a lot. I remember my my friends, my family friends that are like family, um, praying for me that I would that God would not take me. So through all of that, the plan was to um, you know get a hip for my right hip, get a hip replacement. But the infection was so severe that they had to put in what's called an antibiotic spacer, and I would have to mm. be bedridden and go through six weeks of antibiotics then off two weeks and then they come in and do the hip, which is what what they did. They tried cleaning it out, didn't work. So came back in January of 2020 to get what I thought was going to be my hip and the infection was still there. And that was when I was, I'm I'm very, had very much been a Christian Pollyanna. I, I always saw the bright side, even through the first two and a half months of this journey. I was like, it's going to get better. It's going to get great. I'm going to survive. It's going to be wonderful. And that surgery was the breaking point for me as far as my walk with the Lord. I began to really wrestle at that point. I felt like Pollyanna died and I didn't understand why this was happening because what that meant is I had to have another eight weeks bedridden. So essentially I was bedridden for four months. Yeah. Then the, then the pandemic hit, which adds a whole other dynamic to this story. Whole other and, layer. Yes. So the right after the pandemic started, I got my hip at the end of March. My doctor made sure that I was considered a you know an emergency case. And then I went back to rehab and started the the work of learning to walk again, all while in a mask all while being isolated from anybody that could visit me. Um, Not even drop things off. Because if if you remember the beginning of the pandemic, we thought, you know, COVID was being spread by boxes, things on the boxes. Oh, we were so adorable. People would wash their groceries. UPS guys were like stripping down before they went in their house. So if anybody even wanted to drop something off to me, they, they would, it would have to sit for two or three days. So so that was really tough. I was there until the middle of May of 2020, came home. And after I'd had the hip replacement, the doctor said to me in that, she said in, in the surgery, we had a really tough time manipulating your right knee. Mm. So what had happened, I'd been off my RA medication and my right knee has, had kind of fused in four months being in the bed. He goes, you really need to look at a knee replacement. So I could barely bend it once I was up and learning to walk. But literally, I was learning to walk all over again. Yeah. Came home in May, had not been home in six months. I really hit a pit at that point as well. I really struggled with, I don't know, am I a believer? Does God really love me? Is he really here? Mm. Because I have lived my life serving him. What is going on? And I had a lot of wrestling at that time. That's really where I hit rock bottom. And I knew in my heart, I'm like, I know the Lord loves me. I know I follow, I'm a follower of Christ. I know that. But why does this keep, why, why am I not getting ahead? Why am I not making progress? And so then we proceeded to you know, work towards getting a knee replacement. Let's get that taken care of. Then you can really rehab your hip better. I fought against battles of denial from insurance company. My insurance, health insurance said it wasn't medically necessary and lots of denials. Finally, we got it approved uh, beginning of August of 2020. 
And then the week before I ended up in the ER with chest pains and I had Mm. after one heart cath where one cardiology team said it was gastro related and a night of throwing up TMI, throwing up and just, I thought I was going to die. Um, and I almost did the second card. They called in another cardiology team and I had a blood clot in my heart. So that was a, that was another unbelievable thing. Well, obviously my knee replacement surgery had to be postponed. That was a real hit and a real blow. But my orthopedic surgeon said, you realize if you'd been on the table with a blood clot in your heart, what could have happened? So the Lord was gracious to make that happen. But I really did, you know, at that time we were seeing a lot of people dying from COVID. I think that was pre like vaccinations or anything. And I knew a couple people that had died of COVID. I knew former member of our church who uh, was then a pastor and was hit on the side of the road and killed. He had three young children, like all these people. And I really dealt with a lot of survivor's guilt. Like, why does the Lord keep me here? You know, why, why, why not me? Why me? Why am I the one he's, why is he taking these people? So I struggled a lot with that. So I went through cardiac rehab and I had to wait six months before I could go back for the cardiologist to evaluate if I could have my knee replaced. And I did. Had it worst knee that my doctor had ever seen. My patella bone was fused to my femur. So it was quite extensive. And I left there, went to rehab and was doing great. I had made lots of progress and the doctor had told them, you know, be very careful with her knee because it was an extensive replacement. Don't manipulate it. Be careful. All of that. And we were in the rehab gym and the therapist was getting ready to push me across the the way and did not put the pedals on the wheelchair and my Mm -hmm. right leg jerked under my wheelchair. I don't think I've ever had a pain like that in my life. Uh, They thought that it was just, you know, scar tissue breaking up. You'll be fine. I'm like, no, I, this is serious. So long, long story Mm -hmm. short, I ended up going back to my surgeon and from rehab, they, I, I made the appointment. And he said, your patella tendon's torn. He could tell without even x-raying it. So a month to the day after my knee replacement, I had patella tendon repair surgery. Came home after that because the tendon had to heal before I could start rehab. And I just had a, a lot of issues with healing. It just it was not healing well. And so that was in... March of 2021, and then in April of 2021, I had to go back in and have it cleaned out because it wasn't, the incision had dehissed and all of that. We battled throughout the next few months just trying to get the incision to heal properly. Um, Obviously, that poor knee had been, in, you know, cut in and the tendon, tendons yeah. are what sort of help heal and bring those, that skin together. So all this time, I just had been crying out to the Lord that I just wanted to go back to my life. I just want to go back to my life. And finally in October of 2021, into September 1st of October, I just prayed a prayer of surrender. I said, Lord, for almost two years, I have been asking to go back to my life. And I just got to let go of that. Like I have mm-hmm. got to surrender it all to you and whatever you will, I've got to follow yeah. And, the and next- I, I, I think that that question, I, I want to just pause real quick because I think yeah, that question, sure. 
um, of I want to go back to my life of that uh, or that that desire um, is something that so many people feel when things are not going the way that they thought things were supposed to go is, you know, it's not, I, I think of that book by Lisa Turkhurst, like it's not supposed to be this way. Um, right. and it's, you know, it's that, it's that whole idea of our plans, our agenda and our desires. And when life happens and when we are faced with suffering and tragedy and when our plans are thwarted, we get to a, a crossroads where all of a sudden it's like, wait a second, this isn't what I pictured my life was going to be like. If this isn't how it's supposed to be like, this isn't, I did not sign up for this. Oh where in the contract, God, where, what did you say that this is what my life is going to look like? Okay. And it's that, it's that moment of, of where we have a choice where we can run in the opposite direction, we can run for the hills or we can run to the father. And, um, yeah. And so, um, I just, I love the way that you, that you shared that is that you getting to that place of complete and total surrender. And so that was in the spring of 2021. And then, um, but I know that things fall, fall, but you know, but the thing is, is that, you know, when, even when we, even when we get to that part, when we get to that moment of surrender, that doesn't mean that everything's going to then be fixed all of a sudden. And so as we know, um, you know, so you surrender, but then what happens after that in December? Yes. So I surrender, I end up back in the hospital because I have an infection in that knee. So they have to take the knee out, put a spacer in like I had in my hip. So just between October and December, I went back in, had to get a spacer in my knee, got COVID while in the hospital and had to move to the COVID unit and then got the new knee, the new knee, the muscles just that because of the repair and I've not been able to rehab those tendons. Just couldn't hold it together. I looked like a murder scene. I would, when I get from Mm -hmm. the, go from the chair bed to the chair blood everywhere i mean it was horrifying and mm. they decided to try to do a muscle flap surgery which takes part of your calf muscle put it over top of the knee to strengthen it to help hold it together did that and after 10 days on a wound vac they took it off and there was a hematoma and everything had opened up and the doctor that did the surgery was not my orthopedic surgeon it was one of his partners cuz the partner had had a lot of experience with doing a muscle flap. And he, so the, the partner was there looking after they took the wound back off. And he said, well, I don't think there's anything else we could do but amputate. And amputation wasn't even in my purview. Like, like that wasn't even an option in my mind. You know, I thought people that lost their limbs were either diabetic, which I was not, or had accidents. And I was like, What? And so that was December the 12th, I believe. And my surgeon said, you know, I don't want you to make this decision hastily. I want you to talk to people, talk to other doctors, and before you make the decision. Because he knew we both had been fighting for my leg for two Mm -hmm. years. Yeah. And so So, to fight for your leg for two years only for it to just be cut off is like. Yes, exactly. 
did it feel like defeat? It did. It felt a lot like defeat. I just, I battled with what if I have to do this and what's life going to look like? And then do I give up? Because I'm not a quitter at all. I'm very resilient, but this felt like I had lost the battle. And after much prayer and counsel from medical professionals, you know, we went forward with it. Uh, but in the meantime, of course, it's now Christmas, and I had it, it was scheduled for uh, New Year's Eve, twenty twenty one, and I've not felt great since the muscle flap surgery, which I chalked a lot of that up to emotional uh, stress. Yeah, but I couldn't eat. I didn't want to eat. I I just didn't feel well, and I again just I figured it was emotion. My body was catching up to everything I'd been through. And then the day after Christmas, that evening, I coded. I had a blood sugar of 10. Mm. And they, they, I woke up after they had done chest compressions and were re- wheeling me to ICU. I didn't know what had happened. So it was determined I had an ileus, which is a, a gastric blockage. And it usually comes on because you're on a lot of pain medication. And because of the situation with my knee, they actually were giving me Dilaudid twice a day every time they had to change the dressing. And that just impacted me completely through um, my gastrointestinal system. So that was the third time that I almost died. And that one was pretty significant. I don't, I, I mean, I have bits and pieces that I remember, but my friends all told me that they thought for sure that I was not going to make it. They never let me mm-hmm. let on to me. I was telling them I was ready to go. I told them, in fact, I argued and said I didn't want to have surgery. And they said, you, you need to have surgery. You've got to get that leg off. And I said, I don't want surgery. I'm just, I'm going to go see Jesus. So I don't need the surgery. Mm-hmm. So is that, uh, you know, those things were very vivid to me. And I remember laying there thinking, I'm ready to go. I don't, I'm scared about the transition, but I am ready to go. People would came, so one came- of our... Yeah. Well, I was going to say this came and this came after that moment of surrender. Do you think that those, that that was part of it is that because you had that moment of surrender that you were ready at that point for whatever God was going to bring you? Yes. I mean, I, you know, it doesn't mean that I didn't struggle in those months following that prayer with, you know, questions or struggles, but I was a lot quicker to let go of those than I had been in the past. I, up until that prayer of surrender, I had a I had a real tight grip on my life. I loved my life. This was not the way it was supposed to go. And surrendering means that you acknowledge the fact that you're not God. Right. And I think all of us that live following Christ or not think I'm the boss of me. I I determine my destiny. And that's not true at all whether you follow Christ or not, God is in control. So I feel like it was, I was still struggling, obviously, but I had a a different, a different kind of peace because I knew I had prayed to surrender completely, not, not to hold on to anything in this, in this journey. I was weary. I was tired by that time. I was so tired. And so I felt like, you know, it was, it was time to go. It was time to see Jesus. And in fact, 
after I got through the amputation surgery and, and crawled my way back up again, I was mourning and grieving and there were people, a friend of mine lost her mom during that time and she, her mom was septic and, you know, the whole, all that came back to me because I was turning septic there in ICU as well. My kidneys were beginning to fail. And I would think about her mom after I got, when I was recovering, her mom passed away. It went very quickly. And I would just, I was so jealous. Like I, so, I was like, Lord, why take her? Take me, take me. I want to be with you. I am, I don't want to be here. I want to be with you. So I had to work through a lot of that as well. The grief and the pain of what I had lost and that I just wanted to be with Jesus. I had been through so much that to me, being with Jesus was all I wanted. So, you know, you've, you've shared so vulnerably and, and you share, I mean, you've just been through so much and, um, and your faith, uh, is really inspiring. And so I would love for you to speak directly to the person listening who maybe they are in that valley season now. Because what I think is is in particular uh, or particularly so powerful about your story is, you know, you you have been through so much um, and yet on the other side or on the upside, whatever, however we determine uh-huh. you know, where you yeah. are. Um, on the way up. <laughs> the way that, on the way up, um, you know, because, I mean, your story's not over yet. Um, you know, I know as a publication of your book, you know, you're still, I mean, doctors told you you were never going to walk again and yet you've been fitted for a prosthetic and you're, you know, you're, you, you were using a walker and, um, would love for you to share an update, uh, at the end, um, of where you are now, but, but specifically I would love for you to share and just talk to the person listening who is in that season, they're in that Valley and they just feel hopeless. They just feel like they are trudging along. So speak, speak some encouragement to that. And then also just, you know, for the people listening, like maybe you're not in that season right now, but the reality is, is like, if you live long enough, you're going to be there at some point. Um, Mm -hmm. and so, you know, maybe just file it away for for the day and the time that you're there. But, um, yeah, would you just share some encouragement, um, for those people? Yes. When I look back over my life prior to this journey that I was on, I see how the Lord was preparing me. When you were in that valley, it was very hard for me to open up scripture and read read the Bible. It was very hard for me to pray. And the Lord had kind of built a good foundation before then of spiritual growth and a rock solid foundation in Him. So, I will speak first to those who are not in that valley right now. Get in the word, spend time with the Lord, find that foundation underneath your feet solid. Because when that time comes, that's not the time to try to grasp onto something. If you're not ready when you walk into that, you're not going to get it while you're there. But while you are in the valley, what is going to happen is, And I say this and people that they're in the valley will be like, I don't believe that. God will grow you more when you're in the darkness Mm. than he ever will in the light. It's one of the only things that grows in the dark and it's our faith. I cannot Mm. grow a plant worth anything. 
I love African violets. Those are probably the hardest thing to, to grow. Can't grow them. I killed a cactus, like a little small cactus. I can't grow anything. I'm not, it's not my thing. I do have a plant now that's surviving and that's great. But typically when you're, you know, when you're growing things, you've got to have a certain amount of light. You've got to water it properly and all of that. But when you're in that valley and you're in that darkness, you feel hopeless and helpless. But when you do begin to come out and you will, it will, you will come out of it at some point, your, your faith is growing. In mm-hmm. December 2019, and I didn't listen to the sermon until probably later in 2020, Matt Chandler, who's the pastor of Village Church in Texas, he was diagnosed with brain cancer know. in 2009. Ooh, goodness. And they told him, you wouldn't live. You're not going to you know, survive to see your kids grow up. And, you know, the Lord was gracious and he's now a survivor. And so in December of 2019, he preached a sermon on just 10 years, 10 years since he was diagnosed. And he made a statement that has stuck with me. He said, I miss being close to the Lord like I was when I was in the bathroom floor crying and Mm. weeping out to God. Let me see my family live and let me see my kids grow up and get married. He said, there are days now in the ease of life that I look back and say, I want that kind of relationship with the Lord. And although it is sometimes a tense relationship, when you're in the battle and you're wrestling, you're drawing closer. You know, when you think about, um, I've been through a lot in this, I talk about this in my book, I've been through a lot of mergers, acquisitions, layoffs. And when you work with people and you go through difficult times in the corporate world, you all are like battle, you know, soldiers together. And that's yeah. how it feels in the Valley. You and the Lord are battling this together. And he's the one that's really ahead of you in the battle. And so if you're in that Valley, the best thing to do is to surrender, which is the hardest thing, I think. And then to look to him to know that he knows what's best. One of my favorite verses is Psalm 139, 16. And it says, before I was formed, this is a paraphrase. Before you formed me, you wrote down everything in your book in my life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So God has already written everything. I don't know what the future is going to hold, but he already knows. And he knew that before I was even born. Even 18 years before my parents even married, he knew every detail of my life. And so what you're going through, and another favorite saying of mine is Charles Spurgeon says, remember, if divine love, if your circumstance, this is another paraphrase, if you, if you think you should be in any other circumstance than you are now, divine love would have put you there. So if we think in the valley that we are where we're supposed to be because it's part of God's plan, then we know that this is ultimately going to work out for his good and his glory. That's right. In the valley, you know, I used to update a lot of people via social media. It was just too hard to contact everybody. And I was getting lots of texts and calls and my friends were fielding a lot. I would start, you know, re, I would update on Facebook so everybody could see it, pass it along. And I always ended every post with God is faithful 
God is good and God is always right. Right. And I didn't always believe that when I was typing it out, Mm -hmm. but I kept saying it so that I would believe it. And when you know the truth, you just have to keep repeating and speaking the truth back to yourself in order to, 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 to let, to, so that your heart gets it and, and your whole self surrenders to it. If you're in the Valley, you probably don't want to hear Bible verses. You don't want to hear those things. You're, you, you just, it's like, I don't want to hear that. Like, you know, I know all that. I've read the Bible. I know. I've read Job. I've read about Paul. But you're just in a place where you don't want to deal with it. And so in a lot of ways, that valley is best travel with you and the Lord. Because everyone else, no one knows how to really minister to you. They'll, they'll help you and they'll love on you. But the truth has to come from the Lord. And it's okay. It's okay for you to ask questions to the Lord. It's okay for for you to be angry at the situation, but know that God is there. Yeah. And although at the time it didn't feel like it, I know looking back, he was there every step of the way. Yeah, that's right. I think that's such a beautiful encouragement. And, um, you know, I talk about this a lot too, just in my life. And in my book, I, t- I talk about that too, is just that that benefit of hindsight, the gift Mm. of hindsight, um, you know, and, uh, and it gives me perspective too, in knowing that like God doesn't have hindsight. He just has Mm. all the sight. And so for us, it's really hard in the midst of it because we don't have the hindsight. We don't have the all sight, but God does. And then, um, you know, but I, I, I mean, I know I can't think of a single thing I've been through in my life where I can, you know, look back and be like, gosh, that was wasted. Um, when the reality is, is none of it was. Um, uh-huh. and I, I think that that rings true in your story as well, is that none of what you have gone through has been wasted. Well, um, we are, gosh, we are, I'm, I would love to keep talking. You <laughs> were running out of time, <laughs> um, but, um, you know, I would love for you to just kind of update everybody I'm like, where are you now? And so, uh, I know that, you know, I even want an update from like, what, what's the latest after you hit publish on the book? Yeah. So physically I still am, you know, working on balance and walking and that sort of thing. Uh, the beautiful thing is I was able to qualify. I got a power wheelchair, so I'm able to be independent. I can go on our local paratransit and go anywhere I want to go. And that was unbelievable. Right around Christmas, I went to Target. I have not been to Target in probably six years. Yeah. Went by myself. I didn't really even buy that much. I bought some gift bags and went to the Starbucks there and had a Starbucks, watched the people, and it was the best day ever. So mm. I really um, definitely am thankful for the ability to be independent. I always keep in the back of my mind that, you know, technically I shouldn't even be walking at all, but I do walk around the house. some. Uh, the hit of the three plus years of basically my body being decimated multiple times, the rheumatoid arthritis and then being an amputee is kind of a triple threat. So my endurance isn't great, um, but I am able to function and live alone and with help people come and help me do certain things that I can't do. So I'm living a pretty active life. I'm in a PT right now. I've finished PT July of 2022 outpatient, but I've, uh, I'm engaged right now currently in a 
eight-week program with a local college. Doctor of physical therapy students are learning about amputees, and so I get free therapy, which is great. That's they great. Kill they just they about kill us all, but I survived. So, um, but that's good. Um, and yeah, and so physically, that's you know that's where I'm at. Uh, published the book the beginning of December, December first. Actually, we're recording this on February first, and so this is my two month book anniversary. Yeah, uh, loved it. Um, can't wait to write more, which I guess tells me that I'm excited about being an author. And so I, I've got ideas for other books, and would love to do a children's book. I had a small group of kids that are now second graders who prayed for me throughout that journey. They were kindergarten four, three and four at the time. And they knew me, their family knew me. And so one of the little girls, Margaret would always pray for Miss Rose Booth and her robot leg. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, Margaret Hunter, no, Margaret, Zachary and Hudson, um, all three of those have been little prayer warriors and, so I would love to write a book for kids on interacting with someone that has limb loss. And um, so that's something that might be the next project. I don't know yet, but yeah, I, I hope to eventually release an audio book of my, of reading my own book. And I think that's something a lot of people have asked if I would do that. So I'm looking forward to doing that. Um, like I said, I'm very active at my church, and so that consumes a lot of my time. And I also um, do a little freelance work for a startup company. Not not a lot, but I do some. And I don't foresee myself ever going back to work full-time physically. I think it's just too demanding for me to work at the, the way I was before. Ideally, I would love to be able to drive with hand controls and get a, a van where I could be independent in that to that level. So I'm working with uh, our state vocational rehab about that. And it's a long process as most government things are, but maybe one day that might, might be something that a dream that can come true. Awesome. Uh, well, Rose, thank you so much for being here and for sharing your story. And, um, I will make sure to have, uh, links in the show notes for, um, where you can connect with Rose and to get her book. And um, just thank you so much for all that you are putting out into the world, Rose. And thanks for sharing your testimony. Thanks so much, Molly. It's been great. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. I hope you loved it. I would love to know what you learned or if there was something that inspired you or encouraged you. Please let us know on social media. You can find me at Still Being Molly or at Can I Laugh Pod, wherever you get your podcasts. And take a moment to leave a review of the show because it really does help us to know what you're liking and how the show is impacting you. Also, if you haven't had a chance to pre-order my new book, If I Don't Laugh, I'll Cry, How Death, Debt, and Comedy Led to a Life of Faith, Farming, and Forgetting What I Came Into This Room For, you can do so right now. You can go to my website or my social media. The links are there. Please pre-order it. It is just is a huge help and it would mean the world to me. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for your support. And thank you to the team at Third Wheel Media for producing the show and for all that they do. Grace and Molly, shout out to you both because I don't know what I would do without you. Love you guys. We'll see you next week. I hope something this week makes you laugh till you cry. Bye.